episode 143, Getting Great One Step at a Time. Today, I speak with Dr. Nick Terhaden about incrementalism. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. We need to make incrementalism sexy. We need to make it sexy because healthcare will be transformed via evolution, not revolution. As Dr. Nick says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And that proverb is as true in American healthcare today as it was whenever this was written eons ago somewhere in China. Dr. Nick and I also discuss the potential of telehealth. And finally, because possibly all roads lead here, we talk about the age-old question of, is healthcare a right or a privilege? My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dr. Nick. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's talk about incrementalism in healthcare, which is something that you have written and spoken about extensively. I've always believed that healthcare, like so many other industries, requires ongoing improvement. And what I've been troubled with is this uh, constant search for the next uh, eureka moment in healthcare where we can change from uh, existing understanding or process and, and move to a new experience that just revolutionizes things. And occasionally we have those. But I think the vast majority of improvements that we see are incremental in nature. And even when you look back at the big companies that have just completely changed our world, Uber's, you know, the classic example. When you look back at the history of Uber, it was actually a number of small incremental changes and course corrections that ultimately ended up with various confluence of technology and insights into this revolution that we all can't live without. And I'm always looking for that insight and that change in healthcare because it's things that people can apply on a daily basis and derive the value from that incremental improvement. But it also moves them along the path to that major change or major improvement that we're all looking for as well. If you're incrementally improving, wouldn't it be easy to get lost in the sauce? In other words, you sort of have to have a direction that you're headed in. So, how do you manage? the necessity to have some sort of vision or some sort of end game with doing it in baby steps or achieving it in baby steps? I think that the reality is that you don't do incremental improvements without a clear sort of target or direction. So, uh, you know, you can randomly look for uh, improvements in a specific area, but if it's not tied to some overall goal. And, you know, those can be big goals. I want to improve the quality of the healthcare that we deliver. I want to lower the price. You can attach specific goals. You know, let's reduce the cost of the care whilst improving the quality by 10% over the coming year, for example. So you have these larger goals in mind, but then break it down. And I, I think it was an old Chinese proverb that talks about, you know, every long journey begins with a single step. And I think those incremental steps allow you to break down that big task into these little tasks and you can work backwards. And sometimes that's 
a requirement because when you look at this extensive goal, it can be very difficult to see how you're ever going to reach that. It seems so far from the current experience. So I think having the future perception of where you're trying to get to and then taking a step back and saying, how can we get there? What are the steps that we need to take to arrive at that ultimate goal allows you to combine those two elements in a coherent fashion. Yeah, I have to say a couple of years ago, for that exact reason, I was fascinated with Moneyball by Michael Lewis. Did you read that book or see that movie? Absolutely, both. Yeah, because what they do in Moneyball, which basically they were applying statistical models to baseball to try to figure out how to win most efficiently, what they, they did that exact thing. There was, and I'm going to forget everybody's name, but what a young, I think he was from Harvard, economist did was figured out, you know, if you're going to win a baseball game, then what do you require? You require somebody running across home plate. How do you get someone running across home plate? You use a you select players based on those small criteria. I thought it sort of embodied what you just said. I agree. And, and Michael Lewis has done just an astounding job of taking what essentially for most people is a terribly boring subject, you know, uh, statistics, uh, mathematics, analysis, and made it interesting by tying it to things that we're interested in. And he, he has a number of books that have different takes on various areas. And I think that's exactly right. He's sort of broken it down and delivered this amazing sort of insight that uh, was really quite incredible for that particular baseball team. And I'm not fascinated by baseball, but I was fascinated by his book and the insight and, and think that's very much along the same lines of that incremental approach. Yeah. So I found that playing Moneyball with uh, internal teams was a little bit more exciting than finding incremental. I don't know. It just had a better ring to it. <laughs> Absolutely. But but tell me from your experience, how do you lead a team? You know, so on one hand, you got to think big and have this the, these larger visions. On the other hand, you, you've got to kind of, you know, hold on there. You know, let's just do this one step at a time. Like, how do you manage to that? I think that comes down to human nature and understanding individuals. I think you'll you'll find that your teams are made up of people who maybe divide along lines of you know future thinking it reminds me a lot of the one of the old methods of dividing up your meetings uh, that was based on characteristics and there were several characteristics that you would find with different individuals there were people that really sort of looked at the future thought about the future and then there were others, and I know this is not me, I just remember some of the terms around this, the, the folks that you would call completers or finishers, the project managers. And, you know, you needed to manage that group effectively to make sure that all voices were heard. So this is, you know, as much as anything, it's, it's about managing individual uh, skills and characteristics to bring it together. Uh, the sort of science behind that was to bring the right groups together. So if you brought all the futurists together, you'd have lots of future vision, but you'd get nothing done because nobody would sort of be taking that and turning it into actionable activities. And I think that's the same thing with this sort of strategic view and incremental approach. If you combine the right people and allow all of those voices to be heard, and importantly, be respectful. Everybody has an important insight and vision and making sure that that's brought out. That's really one of the key aspects of good leaders, I think, uh, you know, what was termed the chairman in that classification system 
was able to tease out from those individuals each of those elements that contributed to this overall stepwise approach to reaching that goal. So maximizing the contributions of all of the people in the team, I think, allows you to have both that short-term incremental approach and the futuristic vision and you know, the ultimate goal uh, of achieving success with that long-term vision. Yeah, I, I've been reading a bunch lately about human intuition and, and how it works. And it actually turns out that human intuition is really powerful and often very correct in fields that we know well. You know, this this component of gut reaction intuition is is something that for me is truly fascinating. We We find it in medicine. You know, I've worked with clinicians who literally will walk into a room and will have just this innate sense of diagnosis and understanding of a patient, despite very limited details or information. It's not as if they went through the Gregory House approach of reviewing all the data and um, you know having all of that information. It turns out, I think, that that's very much associated with pattern recognition, which we as humans are very good at. We can't always define it. We're not very good at automating that. But some people are very good at that. And, you know, depending on the domain, I think recognizing your domain and your pattern recognition and trusting your gut, but then validating. So, you know, trust, but verify and allowing people's intuition that's developed over years to shine through is really a, a tremendous way of sort of stepping through and improving. But it really requires empowerment. I think one of the things that we fail to do in healthcare and in many other industries is to empower these wonderful resources. You know, the human brain is still the most powerful processing machine on the planet. And we don't capitalize that in many instances because we force people to do rote activities that don't benefit from their sort of extensive experience and capabilities. Well, a lot of times that involves a culture shift, you know, it's a whole organization that sort of has to pivot to some extent to create an environment where it, it's safe to fail, which has been talked about extensively. And fail fast as well. I think that's the other thing that you see with incremental approaches is if you apply that incremental improvement and it turns out not to be an improvement, recognizing that and course correcting, when you look back at these very successful companies that are held up as examples of the way to achieve both commercial success as well as contributions back to our world, our society, they course corrected. You know, when you look at Uber, it didn't start out as a taxi-based service. The same with Twitter. It didn't start out like that. They started out as very different things. And I think that course correction is part of this incrementalism that is so valuable. Hopefully Uber can see clear to course correct. <laughs> but, you know, actually you say something which I haven't really thought about in isolation before that incrementalism is actually a safer way to proceed. You know, if you're doing things in very small steps, you're doing small experiments that are failing fast and you're applying kind of limited quick resources to those small experiments, then th there's much less risk involved with trying something that doesn't work. I would agree. I think it's, you know, reducing the risk of potential failures in your organization and your activities, you know, reduces the cost. And the most important aspect of that I always find is the learning experience. It's one of the things that I always heard to say in my family, life is always going to throw you a curved ball. Things are not always going to go right. The most important thing that you can derive from that is to learn from the experience and apply that knowledge at some point, 
in the near term or in the, the long term future so that you don't repeat those mistakes and other people don't have to repeat those mistakes. That would be the holy grail. What do you think that people should be thinking about and empowered to pursue right now? I, I know that you're a fan of telehealth, for example. Talk a little bit about how to apply incrementalism or why you think that telehealth should be a vision. Absolutely. So telehealth is, to me, one of those clear opportunities for stepping into. And it's one that, you know, frustratingly has been challenged in terms of success. I, I was talking to somebody recently who described going to the American Telemedicine Association uh, annual meeting and hearing the president each year say, this is the year for telehealth. And they've been doing that for the last 20 years. So clearly they haven't reached that inflection point. But when we look around in our world, I mean, you just have to look at the change in commercial buying of, of products. You know, my own personal experiences of going to a store, finding that it's closed or it doesn't stock something and then reverting to online shopping and discovering that I've got many more choices and I've also got information and I've got references for want of another term of uh, ratings by other people with some method of trust. So we've reverted to this alternative that is essentially online. And, uh, you know, you can discuss the, the, the negative impact. I think all innovations have some unintended consequences, you know, that you can perceive as negativity. But, you know, ultimately, I think constant step forwards and trying to deal with that is the important element of this. So don't stop progress because we can see a negative impact. We just have to manage that negative impact. And telemedicine to me is the obvious extension. Why would I, as a patient, want to get in my car? Well, actually, before I even get in my car, I've got to get the appointment. And that can be a, a mammoth task in its own right, just trying to find a, a matching of schedules. And that's only my schedule and, and an office and a physician. That's three people. But, you know, it turns out that's actually quite a complex problem. And then I have to drive to the office at whatever time it is, sometimes take time off work, uh, sit in a, a waiting room. And, uh, you know, ultimately see somebody maybe for seven, 15 minutes or whatever it happens to be, go through this process to receive either a diagnosis or a next step. And in many instances, I think you can achieve that same uh, effect over a, a mobile communication. I would have a telehealth consult with my mother every week. And it was on FaceTime. It was nothing more than a FaceTime conversation. But we were having a consult in, in some form. I was validating that she was well, that she was up. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a number of characteristics that we can determine. So just providing a, a means to allow that in the existing regulatory infrastructure, I think, is a key. And allowing you to connect with your local physician. I think that's one of the major challenges is that telehealth tends to be outside of the existing process. So uh, if I call a telehealth service provider, it may not be my regular physician. He doesn't know anything about me. I've got to go through that process of education. It, it's not as satisfying. Whereas with my existing physician, that would be much more satisfying and much more efficient. But we haven't really enabled that with many of the models today. 
Do you feel like with this movement towards direct providers, direct care, which is the idea that kind of along the same lines as concierge medicine, but, you know, like you have a doctor that you're working directly with outside of the insurance system. I just thought of it when you were giving the example of of you, who is obviously a doctor, and your mother, that maybe telehealth has greater application um and, and I'm saying this without any evidence whatsoever to helping people remain well as opposed to trying to figure out how to diagnose someone when they're sick with anything of any complexity I don't think that's unreasonable I think there's clearly components of diagnostic capabilities uh, that require some personal interaction and certainly lab results. But let me take you back to my medical school era and, you know, the process of diagnosis, which is made up of essentially three major components, the history, the physical, so examination, and then additional testing. And as a component contribution to my diagnostic insights on that patient, the history contributes somewhere of the order of 80%. The physical, 15%, and then the diagnostics, 5%. Now, those numbers, I think, are changing, but we discount that history too quickly. And certainly different systems um, have progressed in different ways. I always use my brother as a, a wonderful case in point when he was visiting me here in the U.S. skiing with his wife. His wife actually had an accident on the slopes, went down to the um, uh, medical area and refused to be seen until he had shown up. They found him. He turned up. He examined her and said, oh, she has a fractured malleosis. She fractured her ankle. And the the physicians in the facility were just blown away. How on earth could you know that? We, We don't have any films. And well, I examined her, but, you know, the, there was contributions from the history of how she uh, fell and uh, the experience and then where she described the pain and so forth. And then I confirmed that with an examination. And sure enough, he was proven right. He had fine tuned that. He's an older, you know, more experienced physician than I. He's older than I am. And that to me is important in telehealth because you can establish an awful lot of that. So whilst I agree with you, I think there's a proportion that, you know, needs face-to-face and, you know, the management of chronic conditions is a, a, a clear opportunity, you know, with regular engagement without people getting in the car and, and so forth. But in this particular instance, I think it's broader than we perceive because of the capacity of that history to contribute to the diagnostic insight. There's a lot of telehealth apps, et cetera, where you get online with someone who you've never seen before. They have no idea who you are and you have no idea who who they are. I think that you know goes back to the point that I made about interacting with your existing care team. Right. So mm-hmm. family practitioner, general practitioner, you know, the person that knows you and, and deals with you is absolutely much more capable of developing an insight. You'll know 
and he may not remember, but he'll have access to the information. And it's not just about access. So, you know, looking at the family history is helpful, but knowing the insights behind the family history that contributes to the social history, et cetera, is no question going to contribute to what is essentially a much better experience that will deliver a better, faster, clearer insights. And I think that's one of the major failings of the telehealth concepts to date is that it doesn't connect with that knowledge and resource. And you can mitigate some of that by saying, hey, I'm going to provide you with access to the history and physical, the existing electronic health record, your test results, all of that. But it's still not quite the same as knowing the individual. And that's really a personal interaction that gives you something that's more than can be captured in a database that I can reference. Although at this juncture, it almost seems like as much innovation is necessary in changing the practice model and the way that physicians or, or the practice of medicine in order to accommodate this sort of thing, as is in the technology of telemedicine. Absolutely. Let's talk about the application of knowledge at the point of care, which is an, another one of your stomping grounds. I think, you know, one of the things that is clearly a challenge for us. I mean, when I went to medical school, the method of approach was put a funnel on my head, pour in this information, test me to make sure that I had memorized and learned it. And then uh, assuming that I got all of the check boxes checked off, launch me out into a career as a, a physician. And the reality was, you know, that's now 31 years ago, that even at that point in time, I think we had reached the inflection point of the acquisition of knowledge has vastly exceeded my capacity to just even absorb it, let alone process it. So for, for the average family practitioner or somebody in a specialty, the estimate many years ago was a minimum of 80 hours, 80 to 90 hours of reading of clinical journals to essentially do the moves, adds, changes to the database that sits in my uh, brain that I apply at the point of care. Well, that's clearly an impractical thing. So how do we bring that knowledge and allow it to be applied concurrently? Because when you as a patient go in to see the physician, you're hoping that you get the best possible care based on everything that we understand today. And we have lots of research that demonstrates that that's not the case, despite identifying the requirement to give somebody that is uh, under suspicion of a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, a beta blocker and a, a, an aspirin, the actual execution of that took 17 to 25 years. Well, that's just a tragedy. And it wasn't a fault of the clinical profession or the, the, the system, but essentially people couldn't acquire and apply that knowledge. You were essentially rolling the dice that whoever you saw had acquired that knowledge, gained that experience, as I talked about previously, that incremental learn from your mistakes. You know, but that's not a great, great way of practicing. So I think what we have to do here is clearly take that knowledge and start to apply it at the point of care and do so quickly. So we have to process the information and then go tease out those insights and be able to bring them to the point of care. Now, the incremental approach of that is very challenging because it's such a large amount of information. How do you sort of bring it in, in small doses? But I think what we're seeing with computing power, what people call artificial intelligence or you know, natural language processing with some computing power that tries to understand the various elements of the, the knowledge base 
is that we can turn that into useful execution. And I think the most interesting thing around this is we can use that and apply it to the massive amount of data that we've acquired for patients, albeit it's not linked, but you know, linking that together and start to identify patients that need intervention that are currently not receiving it. Most of what healthcare is, is it's, you know, treating conditions that have, you know, uh, risen to the point of severity that, you know, they interact with the healthcare system. And we know that the vast majority of impact can be achieved long before that. So if we can go identify those individuals and say, who is it that is looking like they're going to have a myocardial infarction? Based on all of this knowledge and research, we, we know and have those insights, identify them, and then focus our clinical resources on those patients and help them get better. We've satisfied everybody. We satisfied the physicians because now suddenly they're focusing and doing the things that they want to do, which is make patients better or actually prevent them from getting sick. We've satisfied the financials if we fix the regulatory uh, framework that says instead of paying for all this high cost care at end of life and you know in the, the latter stages of disease, we're going to prevent it. And that's much less costly. So we're saving money. Obviously, the reimbursement model has to change from this fee for service to a much more uh, holistic view. And best of all, you're giving the patients what they want, which is uh, you're going to prevent me from getting sick and having that heart attack and becoming a cardiac invalid. That's just an outstanding opportunity with all of this innovation around this. Just to reinforce what you said at least a year ago, I interviewed Dr. Josh Benner on this podcast, whose company is RxAnsi. And I mean, this was a couple of years ago at this point, but they had developed a model that really accurately predicted who was going to get addicted to opioids, like, you know, before even handing out the first prescription. So there's a lot of really cool things that can be done. One of the issues that they stumbled in, and this is the entree to, I think, an important question, who cares if someone is addicted to opioids? I mean, everyone, of course, at a human level is concerned about patients going down that bad path, but they could only find payers as truly concerned or concerned enough to pay for a system, which is expensive. I mean, kind of starts at a lot of zeros to, you know, import all the data and to run and crunch those numbers. You know, the, the providers were a little bit less willing to embark down that journey and even necessarily change their workflow in order to take the extra clicks before they prescribed opioids, especially in the ER where things are going a mile a minute. You know, what does incremental look like perhaps? Or how do you actually apply this knowledge? How, how do people get this knowledge at the point of care in a way that isn't completely disruptive to their existing workflow or, and in a way that they accept? I think the uh, the incremental approach to this is to focus on those areas that will tie back to the finances quickly. In the case of opioid addiction, you know, people do care, but they don't care enough to pay money for it. You have to find the financial return. So focus on the patients that are costing you or will potentially cost you the money around future impact. So can you identify those patients 
that are currently not sick enough to intersect with your healthcare system, but you're covering them. So you're covered live. So look at any insurer and say, hey, you have all of these people, but what's your risk pool? And most people understand the, the high risk or high cost patients because they've already intersected with the system and, you know, the paying out. And one instance of a myocardial infarction and, you know, coronary uh, care and, you know, maybe some stenting and whatever, huge impact in terms of cost. And there is some potential to offset that or prevent it. I think you'll get people's attention very quickly. So I'm renowned for this as well. I, I say always follow the money. And, you know, sometimes people get upset at that. But you have to because ultimately there is an, an unlimited set of resources. You know, I get a little bit frustrated with people that talk about, you know, healthcare is a right in that it, you still have to pay for it. It doesn't matter who you've got or what the system is, whether it's free at the point of care or it's delivering an insurance, you know, wherever around the world, there is a limited set of resources and you have to work within them. And it's the same thing that we do personally, but people seem to have this disjointed or disconnected view of healthcare that says, no, no, everybody should get free healthcare. And we all want to give, you know, but we just don't have the capacity. So how do you allocate those resources to get the maximum effect? And of course, this rapidly descends into, you know, very controversial areas that have, have, have been turned into controversy. And, you know, the NHS in the UK tried to deal with this with what they call qualities uh, or qualities, quality of life assessments that try to assign a score and give a value to treatments to say, hey, with this limited pot, here are the things that we can get. And of course, that creates inequalities for people's access. You know, if you roll the dice and you have a glioblastoma, that's a, a terrible disease that has very, very poor outcomes. Sometimes it's because it's diagnosed late, but you know, it can be very hard and very expensive. I'm not saying you shouldn't get treatment, but you have to take account of the cost and put that into an overall picture for the whole population. Everybody demands or requires this. So you, you get very quickly into very, very difficult conversations and people get very emotional about it. And I wish we could have a real discussion about it that allowed people to make or understand those decisions and be connected to the realities of, of this world of choice that says unlimited set of resources. How do we allocate this best to get the best effect? At the end of the day, money or a dollar represents the value you know, how much something someone will pay for something reflects in, in probably the best way that the human race has figured out how to do this, the value of any given good or service. I think it's something that we shouldn't try to divorce from pretty much anything. If we've got a really good signal and we have really good information about what the value of something is, it seems foolish to me that we should disregard that information. But furthermore, healthcare is a very broad term. So the other thing that's kind of interesting here as we talk about free healthcare is, okay, does everyone have a right to 
LASIK surgery? Does everyone have a right, right to plastic surgery? You know, for cosmetic reasons, does everyone have a right to an MRI, which has been proven time and time again to not have any bearing on healing back pain? So you get into some very interesting conversations. Well, I, I, I think interesting is the most complimentary phrase you can use. I mean, it, it, it turns into controversy because it's about choices that are very, very hard. We're, we're not good at accepting our environment that, that says that, you know, it, it's imperfect. I mean, if, if, if we lived in a perfect world, there would be no disease and no cancer and no awful conditions. And I, that's just not the case. It, it, it's very, very challenging, but it's conversations that we need to have, need to understand. Uh, and as a society, as a group, we need to make uh, appropriate decisions around this. And my personal approach to this has always been, uh, you know, let's make steps towards this, you know, find some acceptable middle ground if there's uh, controversy and and understand and, uh, you know, walk a day in somebody else's shoes. You know, I try very, very hard not to be judgmental uh, and, you know, accept that I, I don't know what demons somebody might be dealing with. You know, you, you raise a great point around narcotics, you know, there's no interest is is the term you used. And I, I, it's not that you mean that there's no interest. Of course there is, but there's not the funding. And, you know, there's some certainly perceptions where it's their fault they ended up. And, you know, the reality is that in, in many instances, it's not. There's, you know, all these contributing factors. So it's it's a, a, a problem for all of us in some fashion. Some of us are luckier in, in ways that we haven't managed to descend into that world. But that doesn't remove our obligation of, of dealing with that as a society and being compassionate and caring. And we have to find a way to, to achieve that. And we do that with conversation and we do that with small improvements that people can agree upon. And if they don't work, move to something else. This is a, a very large issue of limited resources. It's a thing. It's not going away. The sky is not the limit in terms of how much GDP can be allocated to this. But the second that you start trying to economize, the second that you you start having some zero-sum game conversations where someone's going to feel they're the loser. And, And how do we as a society come up with what do we as a society believe is moral and just and fair and and appropriate and what people have a right to? Absolutely. Very challenging conversations, but ones that are important to have um, and and have in a civilized way and be accepting of other views and other opinions and find a path through this. This is not easy stuff. It just isn't. I understand, Dr. Nick, that you have a place where people can go to hear you speak on other equally fascinating topics. I've essentially set up a a website, incrementalhealthcare.com. That's where I capture my thoughts, insights on, you know, the the various areas of improvement that we can apply. And I I try and connect with other industries. You know, what can we learn from other places, other institutions to bring to healthcare? We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from other places. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting and uh, I, I look forward to continued discussions and incremental improvements that we can apply to everyone's world. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of 
all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.